The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. I have a uh, tracking system, so I do track outcomes of my patients uh, to learn how the story ends. And I got that habit years ago when I was a moonlighter, very late residency and early in my career, where I started tracking what happened to my patients. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from 2017 titled, Inpatient Notes, Diagnostic Excellence Starts with an Incessant Watch. The guest is also uh, the author of that paper, Dr. Gupreet Dhaliwal, who's professor of medicine at UCSF and works at the San Francisco VA. He is well known as one of the leading experts in diagnosis and thinking about diagnostic excellence. We hope you will enjoy this podcast and take some ideas on how you too can continue to improve your diagnostic accuracy. Capreet, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really loved your piece from back in 2017 about diagnostic excellence and the incessant watch. But I think it's important for us to point out something that you and I have talked about in the past, and that is the importance of getting to the right diagnosis, that as interns, that's really job number one. And I know you teach that also, but maybe you can expand on that. Well, Bob, it's great to chat with you under any venue, and I really appreciate you dredging up this old article. It's one of my uh, favorites because I think it's, it's short and sweet, and it gets to exactly the point that you mentioned, that that's our number one job as internists. I mean, that the procedure, every especially as a procedure and the procedure of an internist is thinking. Um, and so people expect us to do that uh, as well or better than anyone else. And with regards to diagnosis, you know, it's a little bit of a reflection on what we do. We are really in a problem solving business, right? We are trying to resolve a health problem for a patient. Um, and all problems can only be solved if you can define them correctly. So if I get the diagnosis wrong and you get better, well, then the patient just got lucky. Um, but if I get the diagnosis right, then you and I are on the path to accelerating that improvement or at least defining what, you, what we're going to do about the problem. Both of us have seen many cases of patients carrying the wrong diagnosis mm-hmm. and being on the wrong therapy, but they actually meet performance measurement standards for the wrong diagnosis. And that, that sort of correct. drives me crazy. And it leads to the next thing that we talk about all the time is that we want to aspire to diagnostic excellence but it's so hard to measure it. And and I know you've thought about this a lot. Maybe you could share some thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that, that point about, yeah, if I label you correctly as CHF and then I start giving you all the right meds, I get all sorts of accolades and points, even though I'm doing going down the wrong path. 
So I think one of the things that has uh, dogged the issue of diagnostic excellence or diagnostic error is defining a, a correct diagnosis. And, you know, I think about this a lot, and I don't know if I have all the answers, but one thing to think about is that diagnosis from a cognitive standpoint is a classification task, right? You are trying to classify a patient among you know, 200 common diseases or all 10,000 known diseases um, and say, this is what they have. And any classification task has thresholds and standards. And as soon as you have thresholds and standards, there's going to be all sorts of noise and variation between people. So like, you know, diagnoses evolve over time. So is the diagnosis incorrect? If today you diagnosed a URI, Bob, but then the patient comes back to me tomorrow and is sicker with a clear infiltrate and I diagnosed pneumonia, is that an error yesterday when none of that data was there? There's sort of issues of gold standards. A lot of uh, diseases do not have gold standards. Um, you know, uh, if someone has a hip fracture um, and I do an x-ray on it, you know, 10 years ago, if it was negative and they could walk, that's not a hip fracture. But now the, the goalposts have shifted and a CT scan or an MRI might define what a hip fracture is, even though I think the patient can walk and it's a hairline fracture. There's uh, there's issues of sort of overdiagnosis and underdiagnosis. Like this credit go to the person who does the MRI and finds a tiny lacoon uh, and calls something a TIA, whereas the other clinician said this seems much more like a migraine and every other data point goes towards a migraine who, who's right in adjudicating. So those are the issues by defining diagnosis, both on the error side of the ledger and the correct side of the ledger are hard because there's thresholds and judgments. And whenever there's judgments, there's noise. Just just to reinterpret that in one other way, it's hard to come up with the gold standard diagnosis that we're aspiring to. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Between whether it's in the literature, or even between two doctors, I mean, it's amazing. Some of our most contentious diagnoses are around the things that we think are common. Is this a UTI or asymptomatic bacteriuria? Um, is it, these are infectious examples. Is it pneumonia or is it uh, uh, UR, pneumonia or just an upper respiratory infection? And what's really remarkable is like. Technology doesn't necessarily solve it, right? We have PCR now, but when we get that back for COVID, we have to decide, is it an acute infection or an old resolving, resolved infection? Now we get genetic studies all the time, but we now grapple with, is it a variant of unknown significance or is this pathogenic? So technology just shifts the, the spot where we have uncertainty. It doesn't resolve it. All that being said, we try to become better diagnosticians over time. And I know that you uh, have done and written a lot about how to become a better diagnostician. What steps do you take to try to improve your diagnostic accuracy? I have to confess, if you're going to ask me that question, that the first thing is I actually have no measure of my diagnostic accuracy, right? It relates to that part about two things. One is that measuring or determining diagnostic accuracy is tricky because of the thresholds and standards issue that I brought up. But the second, honestly, is behavioral, that there are so few people who track their diagnostic accuracy. In fact, since we're talking about this article, I have to give credit to um, the resident, Kurt Smith, who wrote the original article that inspired me. It was back in 2011. You'll see it in the references. And he was an emergency medicine resident who tracked over his four years his diagnostic accuracy. I mean, it was really, really remarkable. And I think what was both gratifying and inspirational was that he said, you know, his diagnostic accuracy increased from the mid 80s when he was an intern to the high 90s when he was an R4, which reminds us most of the time we get it right and also that there's room for improvement. So I don't measure my own diagnostic accuracy, but I can share the things I think I do that improve my accuracy. Would that be fair enough? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, you draw on the premise of um, 
uh, expertise science and expertise science, there are some things that are important for getting better in terms of our performance. One is that you engage in the task frequently. I know that sounds simple, but there's many career paths where you can do less and less clinical medicine or um, work on other things. So I have kept myself heavily clinically involved at all stages of my career. Um, I cross-train in multiple environments like an athlete. So I'm in the ER, the ward, and the hospital or the clinic. So I try to uh, triangulate my mental model of diseases. I have a uh, tracking system. So I do track outcomes of my patients uh, to learn how the story ends. And I got that habit years ago when I was a moonlighter, very late in residency and early in my career, where I started tracking what happened to my patients and found out how often I got the simple things wrong, not the rare ones. And then I would say I um, orient myself around getting extra reps. So, you know, all clinicians are busy, but if I think of things that I squeeze into my schedule or my routine, I um, prioritize getting to conferences where cases are discussed compared to lectures are given. Um, and I prioritize reading cases compared to studies because I understand the more time my brain tries to engage in the solving of a problem and actually see how the story ends, right? The nice thing about a case conference like Morning Report or something that's published is the feedback loop is closed in that one sitting. So those are the things I do that I think and I hope improve my diagnostic accuracy. So I think in some ways you've indirectly defined the idea of deliberate practice. And maybe you could mention that phrase because we use that a lot, those of us who talk about diagnosis and how you implement that. So uh, deliberate practice, that was a phrase that uh, the recently deceased psychologist Anders Ericsson promoted and I think also disseminated into medical education and medical practice. It's an interesting phrase because when you say it, it sounds very virtuous. Like I'm deliberate about something and I'm practicing. And there's, you know, what's not to like about it? It's very mom and apple pie. But if you do follow his uh, strict definition, there's probably very little that any of us do that is deliberate practice. So he does make a point about different layers of practice. And I think, you know, we say we're in the practice of medicine, but it's worth uh, differentiating them. There's sort of naive practice. Naive practice means that you know, I go about doing something every day and I hope I get better at it. Like just experience alone will be mm -hmm. my teacher. And that's what almost all of us do in almost all things in our life, whether that's driving a car, raising a child, or figuring out the cause of dyspnea in a patient. And then the next level um, that you can aspire to is what he described as purposeful practice. Purposeful practice, I think, probably approximates what many of us are trying to do in parts of our careers, which is I actively engage in an activity that's designed to make me improve. So I'm not trying to go about um, just getting better at um, swollen joints, but I, I sort of keep track of the number of joints that are gout versus septic joint versus OA. And I look back and try to learn from those cases. Um, but I think there's very little that I do that actually is deliberate practice if you follow his strict definition, uh, because deliberate practice means that this is an activity that has virtually a gold standard. There are experts who do it better than others, and they are either the teachers or the arbitrator of what it is. There's very well demarcated specific components of the step, the way you might say like a central line or an LPS specific step. Um, and the feedback loop is super tight, oftentimes by a coach. And at one point, I think Anders Ericsson in his book, Peak, and other people make the point of it, actually deliberate practice is not fun. Uh, so he, he gave the example when he first introduced this back, I think it was in the early 90s, of like uh, violinists who like they practice for hours on end. They lock themselves in their room and they practice the specific component of a piece. And he's like, it was no fun. They don't enjoy it. In fact, it's quite exhausting, uh, but they understood it. So 
all is to say is like, I hope I move myself more often from naive practice to purposeful practice. But if I was honest with you, I, I think there's very little I or most people do that qualifies as deliberate practice. Maybe it's being a stickler. I don't know. So uh, in reading your article and in thinking about this uh, in advance, I've been struggling with the difference between discussing a case presentation at morning report or doing a clinical problem solving exercise and having a patient in front of you and something makes you understand that this is patient that I need to spend extra time thinking about. Could, could you tell me your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think they are all, they're virtually two different cognitive paths. I think the way we might think about it is being in morning report or um, in a case conference is like being in a simulator, right? Where um, even if it's somewhat high fidelity, it's really been sanitized. So issues that weigh on the brain in real life, like the collecting of data is oftentimes done for you. The uh, distraction of the environment are all taken away, like competing demands of patients. And there's a purpose to simulation. That does mean it allows you to focus on just the core uh, cognitive task. But I think in reality, the only way, of course, we get better is by doing the real authentic uh, in-person discussion. And I think that means that there's many more blind alleys that we go down that are not fruitful. And there's many more distractions that we're subject to in that environment. So I wouldn't, I don't want to put them on a hierarchy because I think they each have their own role, but they are really different cognitive tasks. That's why we all sound super smart in the morning report, sipping our coffee, saying an LP should have been done for this patient. <laughs> but in real life, um, you may wonder, like, why did it never occur to me to do an LP when I was seeing that exact same scenario? And for all those other reasons, the cognitive load is just so great, much greater in the real clinical environment. When you have a patient and there is either a delayed diagnosis or previous uh, groups of physicians have missed a diagnosis that you get to it, how do you think about that and do you ruminate on why, why you were slow getting there uh, or why someone else was slow getting there to try to better understand uh, your thought process with future patients? I definitely view it as a learning opportunity. I think one of the things, you know, it's so easy when um, a colleague told me years ago this truism, which carried with me forever, which is that the smartest doctor to see a patient is the last one. Which is another way of saying hindsight is twenty twenty. And uh, over the years, I remember I used to like you know like deconstructing someone else's thinking. And I think what I've learned is that if I wasn't there, I have really limited license to sort of draw conclusions about what they were thinking or what was influencing them. I love you. Know, I don't know if you watch the TV show Ted Lasso um, and uh, on Apple TV. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a soccer coach who actually knows nothing about soccer, and he's trying his best in the in the UK for a Premier League team, but. One of his lassoisms is this notion of be curious, not judgmental. And what he means is like, no matter how quickly your brain forms an impression about someone else's thinking, and maybe even your own, you should just suspend that and be like, I wonder what was going on, or I, I should ask them to learn for myself, because there's almost always more to the story. The human mind is not good at deconstructing the thought process. It's much better at judging outcomes. So studies have shown that when we have nearly identical cases that have a good outcome, we look at the thought process and we say, that was really logical. And when you have an identical situation, but the outcome is bad, like I thought it was PE or pneumonia, but it winds up being PE, then we retrospectively say that was a flawed thought process. But 
it just goes to show you the brain is filtered by the outcome. It's not good at examining thinking itself. But I would argue that there is something to be learned, especially when, I, when I've had a delay. And, and I can think of quite a few patients over, over the years where I wish I would have gotten the diagnosis two or three days earlier. And I do try to deconstruct what was going on. I, I remember a, a famous case that I've actually used in my presentations, sometimes on clinical reasoning, of a patient that I see on a Monday morning, I'm just picking up the service and I have to see 16 patients and I don't focus in on a couple of things because I'm trying to get everything done on time. Overnight, I get one more piece of information and all of a sudden the story starts to come together. And I ask myself, why did I not focus on one piece of information that might've helped me? I think that makes me better in the future by trying to make sure that, that I don't miss things that are are not that obvious or uh, or just don't really fit what we're going towards. I don't know if you have that experience also. No, I, I you know, at some point you have enough, what's the right word? You want to be able, you want to not overreact when there's a bad outcome, right? So let's say it's just something like, um, you know, someone had a headache, it looked all the world like a migraine, but I didn't get a CT. And the next day I learned this was a subarachnoid hemorrhage. You can wildly overreact and say, going forward, I'm going to get a non-con CT right. on all new headaches, right? So there is this challenge of being able to find the decision node and saying, was actually, is that actually the right thing to do? And for the next 99 patients, it still would be appropriate to call that a migraine. Or is there something? And the something either has to be like your knowledge that you've forgotten, a colleague, um, or the literature that tells you, you know what, that, that decision node, there is actually a feature of that that points to subarachnoid hemorrhage. And going forward... I should use that, um, mm -hmm. you know, like the suddenness of it. I didn't put enough emphasis on the suddenness of this headache. But that's right. what I'm going to learn from it. Um, uh, and if you can find that decision node, then I think you can do an upgrade in your software for the next time the brain sees that problem. But it's tricky, right? It is. It, it's a tricky point. The last thing that I want to talk about is teaching internal medicine. We both have the privilege of working with students, interns, and residents and trying to help them become better at internal medicine. So with all the things we've talked about and the things you've written about, how does this influence what you do as an educator? And how do you work to try to help your learners be better at diagnosis? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a privilege of ours. And because you and I are mostly training internists, I think we start up with a leg up on everyone else because we the people we train know diagnosis is job number one, um, or we get the chance to remind it. But because that's sort of built in our DNA, that's a great starting point. But I think what I try to do in terms of, I don't know, inspiring them to be excellent diagnosticians or even being better is sort of, maybe there's a couple strategies. There is the part about modifying their cognitive architecture. That is to say, to make them understand that there are diagnostic schemas that we use for certain problems or that there are to make sure they have the right illness scripts, which is like this mental model, like CHF acts this way and um, IG nephropathy acts that way. And honestly, sometimes what that really is doing is moving them away from a textbook uh, definition to real world definition. Like if I use the CHF example, sometimes I want to upgrade their script and make sure they understand there are variants without lower extremity edema or there are variants with clear lungs. So upgrading the scripts and schemas. So that's one approach. It's sort of a knowledge structure. I think another approach is habits. What can I instill in learners? One is the getting that habit of tracking your patients. That's not built into our job. So I can either show them how I track patients, um, show them really cool systems that 
I've seen a lot of trainees set up, whether that's um, spreadsheet-based or app-based to do it. And then even model that on an attending round. So when I'm done with two or four weeks of the team, I, um, I do a spreadsheet and we do a where are they now? Like, where are these patients and how do they do? And part of that is, did we get the name right? Did we diagnose them correctly? So sort of modeling that as an approach. And then the third part is um, making sure we do analyze errors. So a third arm of diagnostic excellence is showing that there are errors in how we analyze them so that there, you can see the attending can say, you know, I made a missed call here and I gave IV Vanco and admitted someone and this was just being a stasis. Um, and I hope you learn from that and go back. So those are three approaches. Um, let, trying to, uh, make let me throw out one more idea in that and see what you think. It seems to me that as I've gone through my career, my illness script was originally about the disease and more and more, I'm thinking about what the red flags are that I might possibly be on the wrong track. Yeah. And making that more explicit for our learners is part of what we're doing. Say, you know, they admitted this patient for heart failure, but I really don't like this piece of it. And I think we need to hone in on that more and see if it really is heart failure. Yeah, I think that's an effective technique, especially if you said, like, that's your own hard-earned red flag. Like, and you can couple it with the story, like I once went down this route, and that's why I'm sort of passing this um, wisdom on. Um, I think that, you know, I, I remember a patient who was sort of going in and out of altered mental status. And, you know, I went through the whole altered mental status workup, and I really couldn't figure out what was going on with the patient. They would go from my almost like full consciousness to almost fully coma and back and forth. And what I had missed, and luckily caught at the tail end of the workup, was a, a basilar artery thrombosis that was going on and off. It was essentially going in and out of coma. And I remember trying to teach the learners that, you know, my mistake here was I was trying to do almost like an encephalopathy workup when really I should have recognized the onset of coma, which turned your attention much more to the vascular perfusion and things of that nature. And I have countless other ones. But when I have the story, I think it's much more effective than just saying, you know, you should remember to do vascular imaging for altered mental status or something like that. So I love that you finished with th that comment because... My experience with uh, interns and residents and medical students is that stories are extraordinarily valuable. If you're trying to teach something in a, a chalk talk, telling stories about patients gets everybody's attention. If you do grand rounds, telling stories gets people's attention because it, it, it gives, it's like a coat hanger. It's a place to hang that coat uh, of your mind. I can't, Thank you enough, Capreet, for uh, sharing your thoughts on this uh, and uh, making us better understand uh, where we're going with diagnostic excellence. Well, it's, it's my honor to talk about that subject and the teaching of it to our next generation. Thank you, Bob, for inviting me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. In this wide-ranging discussion about diagnostic excellence, three things really struck me. The first is good diagnosticians remain skeptical. They remain skeptical of any labels that are placed upon a patient, even if they place the labels, and keep asking ourselves, should we accept the diagnosis? Because often we start with a diagnosis and the patient doesn't follow the course that we would expect, so it's our responsibility to reconsider the diagnosis. The second is we had a conversation about understanding your mistakes and trying to learn from those mistakes, which requires us to know that we did make a mistake and to follow up on our patients. 
And the last is to develop really refined illness scripts that are more focused on real-world presentations rather than textbook presentations, that certain things we know from experience or variants that are not really uh, placed in uh, the textbooks. And illness scripts also include red flags that say, we might just have the wrong diagnosis. Let's at least reconsider that diagnosis. I hope that we've given you some food for thought in uh, our discussion of diagnostic excellence. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call.